Welcome back to Storytelling Breakdown. Uh, these are our campaign diaries. If you missed the first episode, we decided to do something a little bit less formal than our normal episode feature-length content. For our first episode, we chatted about the beginning of Ben's current campaign that he is DMing. Yes, indeed. And uh, this time we get to talk about mine, which is is a significantly scarier idea. <laughs> Because there's something for that, now. Well, for now, it's a scarier <laughs> idea. No, it's a scarier idea to have me talking about it because the the listener needs to understand one very clear thing about the difference in us as DMs. You keep notes, <laughs> detailed <laughs> notes. Uh, I don't. I don't take any notes. It's very odd. Uh, people who have commented on me as a DM before have questioned how I don't take notes, and uh, so now we're trying to go back over a year and talk about the very beginning of this campaign and I'm sitting here going hmm maybe I should have taken notes you do have the benefit that you're pulling from what I think is fair to say is the most popular fifth edition adventure for Dungeons and Dragons that's official I mean, Curse of Strahd or at least and has the most famous it's, and recognizable villain yeah other than maybe Tiamat Tiamat yeah right because that does make my life easier not having to build my own campaign as I'm going. When we started Curse of Strad, one of the big things that led me to Strad was the fact that it was so popular because I didn't know a lot about it when I purchased the module in the first place. And I got the book for like 15 bucks at half price books because somebody didn't know what they were pricing, I think. D&D, I mean, those books are normally, what, 35, 50, somewhere in there. I, I don't know what the standard yeah. price of her stat is currently. I did well on a recent purchase from there. He said checking the local half-price books and not wanting to be too overly effusive with this praise there because I like that option being available to me anytime I visit, and hopefully it hasn't been too picked over. The most recent visit, I was able to pick up a couple things. But Yeah, anyway. I mean, I, I, I don't use a lot. You, I don't utilize half-price books maybe as much as I should, but I did get... Also, not a sponsor. Yeah, not a sponsor. We should probably mention. That's where I got my copy of Curse of Strad, and I paid less for it, and I picked it up on a whim. In all honesty, it looked familiar, right? Because I've played Magic, and I've read Dracula, and that's what Curse of Strad is. And and at the time, I didn't know it actually goes way back to like first edition D&D, and Ravenloft has been a staple of D&D for years. Uh, and so this is the most recent re- reiteration, bringing some of the most popular aspects of Ravenloft through the years back. I didn't have time. I wanted to run a D&D campaign. I just didn't have time to put together a homebrewed world to the caliber that I knew I wanted and still maintain my sanity. So I opted for one of the pre-builds and it's been a whirlwind getting into finally where the point where we are really truly embroiled in the depths of Barovia and the prep for this campaign. It was so different than any other campaign I've ever done as a player or as a DM, getting ready just to get to session one. The prep was completely different. I can recall, and this is where I should probably mention the fact that you're a player in the campaign that I'm running. I'm a player in the campaign that you are running. Oh, yeah. It has been a blast. Thank you. And also, our intention is to go through and each of us record diaries relating to our own campaign. You can listen hopping back, back and forth. That's probably the order in which they're going to be recorded and released is going to be a little bit of both going all at once. Though, obviously, you could also listen to one or listen to the other, kind of go through and then go back. Depending on when you're hearing this, this would be an opportunity to maybe pick one track or the other or just keep bouncing around and go through both campaigns chronologically. With that out of the way, though, let's yeah think about how we chronologically 
got to the start of the campaign, I think I do remember you starting to message me and geeking out about the lore. And that is always a good sign because I remember how excited I was when I started prepping for the first Suicide Squad Fate sessions and then when we started planning back and forth on Star Wars related things. And anytime you are just having a blast in the immersion process, you're getting close to the point where you're ready to run your first session. Yeah, I, I do remember talking with you a lot about the lore right out the gate because we were still in the ending phases of Star Wars mm-hmm. when I first got the first book, the the Curse of Strad campaign book. It's got so much in it about the background and about the characters like the big bad himself, Strad, that I thought, man, I need to I need to really take my time and get to know as much about about him really about him and also the land that he inhabits before I even consider putting players at a table. In the process of the fact that we were already running a campaign together, which you can, dear listener, you can go listen to an entire episode about the first season of that campaign, um, the Star Wars Fate campaign. <laughs> and that's in our second season. I think it's episode four in the second season. Something like that. Well, Rogue Producers right? of Star Wars Story. Yeah, Rogue Producers of Star Wars Story is, is the, the episode title. You're I think for. it's episode four, but if I'm wrong, somebody will correct me. So I, I went and I found some of the old Ravenloft uh, novelizations and novellas that were published back oh man like in the 80s and 90s as D was starting to make its way from scary basement to scary basement before it enjoyed the limelight that it enjoys now and one of the novels that i stumbled across was called i strad memoir of a vampire and so when you look at the curse of strad the big bad has to be very present he and has to be very, very, very characterized. You have to have an idea, a really well-formulated idea of how you want him to be. What kind of a villain is he going to be? He has to be very, in my opinion, he has to be very active with the party, and he has to be almost as much my player character as the rest of the people at the table. And having an entire like 400-page book written first person from his perspective was brilliant. It was gold. It was just complete and total mining gold. It's a fun read. Uh, I don't remember who wrote it. I'd have to look it up because I don't have it handy. But it was a really fun read. So if you ever get a chance, it's a quick read. It's all written in first person. And it's his story of how he came to the Valley of Barovia and how he became a vampire and what he did and uh, how he ended up in his prison. Because the whole land of Barovia is his own prison. It's a very strange setup to be both the total overlord and a prisoner. And so that gets a very weird headspace. So that book was instrumental in getting the villain set up and getting kind of a good idea of the setting and where the people are and the castle and all of the the minutia of getting to session one for my side. A lot of it came from that book. A lot of it came from just repeated read-throughs of the campaign source book, The Curse of Strad. I probably read this book cover to cover three or four times before we ever put players at a a table. And every time I read it, something new would stand out and there's no one way to play the campaign. The way they set up these books is brilliant because you can go and play the Curse of Strad and not have the exact same experience each time. It is a masterfully crafted sandbox from what I understand. Mainly, well, for a number of reasons. Because there is so much to do and while there are pretty clear quest hooks and goals put in front of us 
we've always had the ability to go off the beaten path, uh, prioritize whether we're heading for the lake or the tower or this village or that village or whatever our destinations are, or <laughs> whether we're going to ignore the winery again <laughs> as we're going yeah, you through. Guys keep, <laughs> you guys keep ignoring the, the Wizard of Wines. We'll get to that. But it's in also in the future. very contained because we're stuck there. <laughs> we are in the mist. Yeah, we're not leaving Barovia. So it is, so it is cool. a sandbox emphasis on the yeah, box. It's so cool because really the land of Barovia is broken down into mm, six or seven major locations. You have the three villages, Barovia, Vileki, and Kresk, and a couple of locations that are key in each of those villages. Then you have the castle, Ravenloft, the actual castle of the dread lord, Strad von Zarovich. I've been watching, in addition to, I think I spoke highly of Matthew Colville during the first campaign diary did for my campaign. Mm-hmm. I've also been watching a lot of the Dungeon Dudes and getting into... A lot of their recent content and going back to some of their older content and enjoying it as well. But I think they did like a top five or top ten dungeons in D&D. And of course, Castle Ravenloft was number one. Yeah, it's uh, that castle in general is a third of the book. Uh, it's just huge. I love Castle Ravenloft. I love the village of Vileki. I think I would like I hope that we get to spend some more time there because uh, there's some really cool stuff that we we didn't get to do. But everything is very contained. Like, that's it. That's what there is. There's a couple of other places that, honestly, I don't think you guys are ever going to go to. Maybe. We'll see how the campaign goes because we've got a lot still left to play. But those are other things that if we ever run a Curse of Strad campaign again, or if I ever run a Curse of Strad campaign again in the future, that we could do instead. Right? Mm-hmm. So the sandbox is, is brilliantly laid out to be big enough to really, really play around in and not so big that it's overwhelming. But as the DM, you do need to know pretty much every single location, at least enough to get your party to the front door. And so going through the book, I had it in my head once I figured out players, and I'll get into how I figured out players in just a moment, (laughs) that I would drop a bunch of level ones into Barovia. And then I started looking at the random encounter chart again. And I don't think there's a single random encounter in that chart that wouldn't level a party of level one characters that are less than 10 people. All The random encounters are brutal. The land is brutal. The creatures are brutal. Dropping level one characters into anything in D&D is risky because they're so squishy. And there's, there's so few hit points there to play around with. But dropping them into Barovia <laughs> is like asking for certain death. So then I said, crap, I got to figure out what I'm going to do with a bunch of level ones going into the Curse of Strad. And I was insistent that we actually do start at level one. And now I'll explain why. I knew that the party was going to include my wife, whom we've heard from now on this on the podcast in our Godfather Fringe episode, um, which was loads of fun. And she really enjoyed being on the on the podcast. And, no, it was wonderful. Yeah. And obviously, like we live together, so we, we enjoy being around each other most of the time. And she wanted to play a wizard, but this was her going to be her very first experience playing D&D in fifth edition. She'd had a bad experience with 4th edition, which, you know, we still haven't ever actually gotten into the benefits and pros and cons of different editions. And this is not going to be a time when we do that either. But 4th edition was a little rough and it was easy to have a bad time in 4th edition. It was also easy to have a good time. Like I had had great experiences with 4th edition, but she didn't. So she really wanted to play, and I love having her at the table. She's been loads of fun to play with, and she's really, really digging into her character, and it's uh, it's great. We then decided, 
okay, we want mutual friends of ours to be at the table who one doesn't have a ton of RPG experience and the other one had no RPG experience. And that, of course, was Austin and his wife, Catherine. Austin played his first experience with RPGs was with us mm-hmm. at Fakecore Star Wars. During which he built a Bothan named Wanrick that was an absurd amount of fun to have into the mix because suddenly the party had a sniper. <laughs> yeah. That was his kit. <laughs> he was a, he was a sniper, but he was he was special forces, Green Beret, terrifying yeah. force of nature. Austin um, played him so well. Austin played so him fun. brilliantly, and also and we didn't get to highlight him in the Rogue Producer story really. because we introduced him in the second what yeah. we called the second season of the campaign. Exactly, uh, and he really enjoyed doing it. And when I mentioned, hey, I got this campaign module, and it's this gothic horror kind of a vibe, and his his wife is a Shakespearean actress and an absolute nerd, and loves gothic horror. They were both hooked. So they, those were the first three people at the table I knew. Boom, that was it. And I have this thing as a DM where I really don't like to have more than five players if I can avoid it. Six maximum, seven's too many, uh, I think. That's a personal preference, but I think having seven players at a table just gets to be really messy um, unless those players are all really used to working with each other all the time. So starting a campaign with that many people, my recommendation is don't do it. So we, I, I said I'm limiting it to five. And so I had two slots left. And I had like 16 people who wanted to play. Uh, college buddies that I played with for years. Uh, coworkers who, who play and really wanted to get in on it. Other friends from, you know, well, you and then plenty of other people from the Star Wars campaign all really wanted to get in on it. I said, man, I have way too many people who want to play. And just not enough brain power to tell them a good reason why I'm not going to let them. So I decided to take my brain out of the equation. And I printed off a... 16 team bracket and I wrote everybody's names on the outside 16 lines and I started rolling dice and I said when I get to the final two in the middle that would be the championship those are my two people at the table and so just through the roll of the dice we got you Ben down Mm -hmm. at the table and we got Jeremy Stroop who's also been on this podcast Mm -hmm. at the table Uh, Jeremy works with me downtown at a bar uh, I guess really, I don't really work with him anymore, but because I don't really work there very much anymore. But, but we've also talked about J.K. O'Donnell's yeah, the podcast about because JK's that's plenty. where the Ragtag Bunch has done yeah. so many of, of that's your where gigs, we so That's where we hang are. out a lot, the Ragtag. So Jeremy's a well-known face at that bar. He's one, been one of the bartenders for years. He's also a, a very competent local artist and just a joy to have around. Yeah, it has been absolutely amazing playing with him. I'm glad the dice fell the way they did. So that was our that was us getting to our, our five players. Right, so we had the the two married couples, one of which was the DM, and then you and Jeremy. Eventually, we do add Jeremy's wife into the mix, and that's been a, again a blast. But we'll to get have an to extra... yeah, yeah, we've got we'll, some time we'll, before we'll we meet ex- her character. We'll have to yeah <laughs> explain the arrival of her character in a future campaign diary episode, kind of similar to how we're going to have to explain the arrival of your character my character in a future yep, campaign diary exactly. episode on my end of things. So we've got we've got a lot loads loads of time, and then I'm going through this book again going all right how do i drop level one characters into the curse of strad without instantly killing them all and the the, the real answer is you don't they just have to be kind of lucky but there are things you can do to make it easier on them and one of the things is make them run the death house so in the back of the book there's an appendix for like its own little standalone uh session it's designed to be one session. We ended up breaking it into two just because of the time constraints. And the Death House is designed to do 
level one characters up to level three to take a level one character and if they survive the death house now they're level three you don't technically level up in the middle but because we had to break sessions i did actually give you guys the level up in the middle of the session then i said okay if we're going to do that there's got to be some sort of a logical reason to get stuck in the death house and it actually took me a while to get to the solution that i came up with because the very first thing i did after deciding on death house was sit down with players and get an idea of what their characters would be. Either I did that in person or I did that via text message or, or, or however, and everybody kind of brought me their character concepts. And that was great because without any poking or prodding, we ended up with two paladins being played by Jeremy and Austin, Fyodor and Reddick. We ended up with a cleric being played by Catherine, and that was Mother Gertrude. And I'm always a little hesitant when new players choose spellcasting classes. It's going to be more layers there, yeah. It's, there's just a lot to a spellcasting class. And le- when you're a brand new player, learning the game takes most of your effort. And then you have to learn your class and your spells. And it's just kind of a lot to process. But so far, she's, I mean, she's been, she handled it like a boss. So I, I got zero complaints. And then we had a wizard from Georgia, Aaron. And then we had your character, the rogue. The roguiest rogue, the most edgelord of all rogues, Jagger. Jagger the Shadow Assassin. Yeah, which we've then since messed with your kit so much. (laughs) I'm not complaining about that. And more messes to talk about, but we'll get to that later. That's not even going to be a conversation that happens on the mics. Not right now. And also, it's great that we just gave the names of the characters, but that's not who went into the death house. No, it's not. So I'm, I'm sitting here going, I need... I need to do the death house because I need to essentially teach people how to play the game before I dump them into what is considered one of the hardest campaign modules for fifth edition. And so I'm doing death house and I'm like, but I don't want their characters to do death house. And then, Oh, you've beat the death house. Now you're in Barovia. Yay. I wanted a different beginning. That was the problem. I wanted a specific beginning, but that beginning didn't jive with having level one characters. So, or having those characters already be in Barovia. Oh yeah, either of those. Because the beginning I wanted didn't start in Barovia. The beginning I wanted started in a in a little castle town in on the Sword Coast. Which means that assuming anybody survives to get out of Barovia, you'll be back at the Sword Coast and if people want to keep playing, I've got some places to go and things I can do. That was the idea. So, I said to everybody, "Hey, I want you all to build or just rename your characters." After their great, great grandparent. However that looks like. You can either keep the same class and just put a new name on your character. Or you can build a new character if you want. Nobody took me up on the actually building a new character. Everybody just changed their names. Which I'm not going to, I'm not mad about that. I think I went the furthest on the changes and the only change I had was gender. Yep. So it was great, great grandmother instead of great, great grandfather. And I did that mainly because I wanted to wait until I was actually playing as my character to do his voice. Mm, yeah. Because I, I have a tendency to just lean into the character voice at the table anyway. So it's like, nope, playing a female character here. She's going to sound very different than her great-great-grandson. So I wasn't telegraphing anything about Jagger beforehand. Yeah. Pretty much everybody else just slapped a new name on their character sheet. And that's okay. Yeah. Because that's, that's exactly what I wanted. But it gave me a chance to drop everybody into the death house and then start the campaign. 
So essentially treating the Death House as prelude to the Curse of Strad. And I think it worked out really well. Mm-hmm. Now, for people who are familiar with Death House and with Curse of Strad, they're all thinking, how did anyone survive? Because the Death House is a meat grinder. You're very, very unlikely to survive. And it's got the weirdest assortment of the best of D&D in the house. So the, the characters for the Death House, they found themselves all traveling together for a job. They'd all been hired various ways, but they were the, was going to be their first adventurer as an adventuring team. And one night late in the woods, this weird mist rises up and they're following the road. And then suddenly they're not where they expected to be because that's how Barovia works. All of Barovia is surrounded by this weird ethereal mist that nobody can walk through. It's kind of like they walk out and then they kind of come back. Somehow they get turned around in the mist. It doesn't matter how hard they try. But the mist can also move about in other planes and suck people up and plop them into Barovia. And that's what happened to this group of people, our players. They found themselves on the edge of the village of Barovia. And they were going past a manor house and they run into two very ghostly children that convinced them that something is terrible on the inside of their house. It's going to eat their parents. So all of my goody two-shoes party, remember we had two paladins and a cleric, they decided to go charging into the house. Which point the jo- the doors slam shut, all the windows lock, and actually nobody tried to go out the door, but if they did, the doors turn into cloud of daggers, effectively. The spell cloud of daggers. So if you go anywhere near them, you take 44, 44 of slashing damage, Good. which at level one is very, very, very likely will kill you. So now they're in the house. And like I said, the best of what D&D has to offer in odd CR challenge creatures are in the house. Everything from an animated suit of armor to an animated broom to ghouls, which are actually quite rude, ghasts, even ruder, and a specter. And then the big, big gross thing at the very end of the house is a shambling mound, which on the surface, doesn't seem terrifying right up until you actually have to fight it. So the party finds themselves in the house. The very first thing that happens is they get into the house and the fireplace tries to kill them. I don't think it actually succeeded on hitting anyone, which was good. Then they moved through the house and they got to the second floor, at which point the wizard is looking at a suit of armor. The wizard being Georgia. She's looking at a suit of armor and the armor gets a surprise attack on her, and it drops her to three hit points. And that is how that combat opened. Eventually, the party managed to drop the armor, and everybody was kind of moderately hurt, but the person who was in worse shape was a wizard because they're the squishiest. You know, the wizards are, are great that way. It's like they step on a D4 and they die. D6 hit die, man. Yeah, it's the worst. Then uh, they're searching the house. They're trying to figure out what happened and why there's nobody here and the place looks like it hasn't been lived in for years and there's really creepy writings and very strange occultish type magic going on and the paladin opens a broom closet and nearly dies because an animated broom smacks him on the head and crit uh, that was entertaining <laughs> he was he was pissed austin was like are you kidding me i'm gonna die because a broom uh and then they leveled the broom because an animated broom is an animated broom i mean yeah <laughs> Oh my goodness. I, I, I remember my rogue just actually the irony is throughout the campaign the, I think the most looting that my rogue has done was the previous generation, was the great great grandmother. Yeah. 
she looted the death house more than Jagger really has been interested in looting in anything. That's not yeah. his motivation. Barovia doesn't have a huge outlet for spending loot. That's also true. So as such, there hasn't been a ton of loot to then give because there's not any real reason for you to have it kind of a deal. So the loot that I have been trying to give to the party has been mostly been in the, in the form of items, mm-hmm. particularly recently. But the death house has loads of loot. Eventually, the party works its way through the kind of storyline of the death house where you find out that the original owners of the house got involved in dark magic and weird, creepy, cannibalistic rituals and just horrendous things. And then the nursemaid specter nearly got the party. Like, that was a, I allowed a paladin to use smite at first level because he crit. Is the only reason you guys survived. Uh, I don't remember which paladin was. I think it might have. I think it was Jeremy's character, okay, who pulled that off. So the nursemaid specter was in like the lord and lady's apartments part of the house, and you find out that the lord had had an affair with the nursemaid. There was a stillborn kid, and then they sacrificed the nursemaid to like the dark gods that they were worshiping. And the death house is freaky. The party figures this out. They find a secret hidden staircase in the Lord's rooms after they defeat the ghost and start discovering some more of the creepiness of the house, which takes them to the top level where they find the bodies of the children that met them outside the house. So the Lord and the lady of the house had two kids and then the Lord almost had a uh, illegitimate third kid. The two kids were locked in their room when the Lord and the Lady realized that their depraved rituals had infected the house and the house was starting to enact the rituals on its own. So they locked the kids upstairs to try and defeat whatever presence had infected this house and ergo died. And then the kids starved to death because it's death house and there's nothing happy in Barovia. So the party conversed with the five-year-old boy via the six and a half foot tall 300 pound battle axe wielding paladin because the little boy possessed the paladin that was probably some of the best role playing i had seen up until that point from our party was when austin was pretending to be a five-year-old terrified of everybody around him but in reality was a massive heavy armor wearing soldier was very entertaining and we discover that the little the the children know how to get to the basement of the house which is where the evil presence has manifested so the party heals up spends hit dice does a short rest and goes charging down to the basement of the house this is where you get the worst of the worst in the death house because you've got multiple instances of ghouls just materializing out of walls and out of the floors and surrounding the party. You've got instances where there are ghasts who do the same thing, and ghouls and ghasts are slightly different creatures in D&D. Ghast is like a subset of ghoul. They're both nasty, especially for level one players. They're both really nasty. But the party kind of just steamrolled. The rolls were just impressive. The wizard managed to get a couple of ghasts with just max rolling on fireballs. She managed to max damage, I think, six or seven times in a row mm-hmm. on a firebolt, which the ghouls already were like vulnerable to fire anyways. So that was deadly. And the party just steamrolled. I mean, 
I was really impressed with the dice rolls. I didn't think anybody had that many good dice rolls in a row in them, but maybe it's just me. <laughs> it's all right because Catherine's been making up for it recently. Oh, jeez. Uh, well, we can get to that <laughs> when we get to the sessions where it's come up. Because goodness, yeah, those no, have been rough. Well, and I, and knock on wood, I love the black dice I've been using for Jagger, or in in this case, the rogue of the party. Just in terms of, I mean, there are some sessions where it gets weird because like I'll consistently roll a five or a fifteen, but I'm okay with that because I'm a fan of the Who. But yeah, there fair. also have been, it seems like, above average instances of critting. Sometimes yeah. and then sometimes some... are often during initiative, which as a rogue you don't even always need. Yeah, no, <laughs> but... there's been some brilliant rolling, um, oh, and there's been some really bad rolling. But thankfully, that didn't happen in the death house. No. And as as the party moved their way through the the catacombs underneath the house, and discovered there was like a whole cult living down there at one point, and they fight the guests that had been the lord and the lady of the house. And uh, Jeremy, his character, crit on one of those. And Austin's character, who got, again, just lambasted by one of the guests in a surprise attack, ended up standing on the four-poster bed in the middle of the room. And he, part of building his character is what he wanted to use a halberd. And a halberd is a, is a reach weapon. So when he was standing on the bed, he could hit everybody in the room including the gas. There was no place where the gas could stand where they couldn't get hit by him. And so he's just swinging around, laying about. That was a great little combat. And we finally made it to the end where the party goes up against the Shambling Mound with practically no spells. And nobody except, I think, you at full health. (laughs) Not sure how that happened. Well, I just, again, level one, knowing that's the thing about level one with new players they don't know how little margin for error there is yeah and i was not about to have i think i called her vespa because i was basing her on vesper lynn eva green mm-hmm. for the, that yeah, character from Royale. yeah and just i wasn't gonna have vespa stick her dagger in the proverbial light socket right somebody was actually touching the animated armor when the wizard cast uh Shocking grasp on it. So both of them took damage. But that's beside the point. You finally get to the Shambling Mound. And the Shambling Mound has like an absurd a number of hit points. It's like 120. It might even be more. I didn't. I don't have my monster manual on me currently. But it's a stupid amount of hit points. It also, through the course of Death House, there's an atrocious number of torches laying around that people can pick up when they loot rooms. So the party had like 80 torches. And I'm like, this doesn't make any sense because the Shambling Mound doesn't have a vulnerability to fire or anything. So what's with all these torches? So me being a gracious DM, I gave it a vulnerability to fire. And so the party started making improvised weapon thrown attacks with lit torches against the Shambling Mound. And in the room where you end up fighting the Shambling Mound, there's like a a raised catwalk around the outside of the room. Which I think is where my character stayed the whole time. Yep. And just hucked torches. And those torches were only doing a D4 of damage, but it was vulnerable because the torch was flaming. And I I let that go. I said, I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give you all of that extra damage because it's got how many hit points? 136. 136 hit points for a level for five level one players with no spells left. It was You actually reversed insane. that because it has a resistance to fire. 
That could have been so much well, worse. That would have been so much worse. You, I completely reversed you it. You flipped the switch in favor of the party there. Goodness. I needed to. Otherwise, you all were going to die. Yeah. And the outcome of the Death House is only good if you do manage to kill the Shambling Mound. Because when you get to that room, there's like a raised altar in the middle of the room, and you have to make a blood sacrifice to the altar, which the paladin just walked up and cut his hand and put it on the altar. Like, everybody's convinced, oh, one of us is going to have to kill someone, and the paladin goes, it just says blood offering. It doesn't say it has to be a death. And he rolled a religion and rolled high, and I said, okay, fine, I'll give that to you. Because it's ambiguous in my book whether or not you actually have to kill somebody on the altar or you just have to feed the altar blood. Then the Shamley Mound came out. Everybody hucked torches at it until it was a nice little barbecue. And then the house crumbles around the party as they have to run out of the house, kind of like uh, the end of The Mummy. You know, the whole place just kind of starts sinking into the sand while the house just kind of implodes on itself. So the players finally get out of the death house. They've they've done it. They're going to be level three. They've defeated all of these nasty spirits of the occult and the weird shambling mound. I'm not even sure what the heck a shambling mound actually is. Is it a fiend? No. No, it's Aberration. a large plant. It's just a plant. Yeah. So we, we, we essentially recreated Little Shop of Horrors, except not. Well, I was going to say the art is also similar to, but legally distinct from Swamp Thing. At least that was what came to my head the first time. That's fair. But it, yeah, it's so it's this very odd kind of final fight because... Even then, I didn't really understand the real story significance of the Shambling Mound, but it happened. The house imploded on itself. The party never returned the bodies of the children to their crypt, so the two ghosts of the children are literally standing outside of the house when the party gets out, and they're like, well, great, now what do we do? Because their spirits now cannot rest because their crypts have been destroyed. That was unfortunate. And as the party's standing there going, okay, what next? I had the black carriage roll up to the house. And the door opened, and Strad was there, right? We met Strad the very first time in at session the death two. House, yeah. In session two. He stepped out of the carriage, and he essentially told the party, you can either stay here in Barovia, or you can get in the carriage, and the carriage will take you back to your land. I had had a vision of members of your houses being ones that might free me from my prison, but they weren't you. So I'm giving you one chance to leave. I will take care of the house. And he stepped off and did some magical thing. And the party decided, yeah, we're getting the heck out of Barovia. And they got on the carriage, at which point I handed the party a big long letter about Strad's reaction to the people who ran the death house and that was the very opening to what has become our campaign of the curse of Strad we we got the big bad we got everybody up to level three nobody died several people got really close the way I run D&D is particularly with this one Ben's heard it a hundred times maybe a thousand times the threat of death should be real and ever-present which Barovia provides plenty of opportunity for. I look forward to telling all of you about the rest of the campaign because there are so many just good little nuggets of ridiculous to to bring in and everybody's character is just oh it's so good. And we got to we got a chance to do a a rework at level 5 with almost everybody's character that'll be a lot of fun to discuss in the future and mm-hmm. I look forward to telling you dear listener 
More about the Curse of Strad when we get to Session 3, Level 3, with the actual party. Thank you for listening. Please leave a review, give a rating, subscribe, and share with your friends from wherever you get your podcasts, especially if they play D&D. It all helps Storytelling Breakdown reach more people and grow our community. You can check out the SB blog and past episodes at our website, storytellingbreakdown.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram and reach out to our team at info at storytelling-breakdown.com. Our theme music is by Kurt Remke. Our logo is by Daniel Church with campaign diary logos provided by Michael Ganser and Jeremy Stroop. Our podcast is hosted wherever you get your podcasts by John Dawkins and Wayne Shout Productions. Everyone has a story. These are some of our favorites. And this has been a Storytelling Breakdown Campaign Diary. Shout Productions. Wayne Shout. <laughs>